Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Move Nourished podcast, where we discuss nutritious eating, functional movement, and herbal medicine to help you move, eat, and live better. I'm Alyssa. And I'm Forrest. And we are clinical herbalists, movement coaches, and wellness nerds. Let's get started. All right. Today, we are going to be talking about the idea of movement as being recovery driven. And we are going to do our level best to convince you that your movement, that you should be thinking about recovery first and foremost when you are choosing your programs or choosing your movements or nourishing yourself afterwards and all those pieces, because we are going to be discussing how movement is a stressor and how your body adapts to that stressor and why your capacity and how well you recover is what determines whether you meet your athletic goals. So let's dive into the basics of how movement is a stressor and how that cycle works for us. Right. So stress gets a bad name, probably deservedly and undeservedly, but stress is really just anything that is a load on the system that we then have to adapt to deal with. So training is a stressor. So we think about if you want to do bicep curl, you are stressing yourself with a load of the weights that you're lifting because you want to get a certain kind of adaptation, the adaptation being more strength and hypertrophy in your biceps. So you undergo a stressor to get that adaptation. The missing piece in that is the recovery. So it's not just the weight that you lift in your bicep curl. It's also the rest periods in between the sets it's the rest period after that workout before the next time you do bicep curls. And it's the amount of protein and other nutritional factors that you're putting in to your body that then allow for those muscles to be broken down and repaired as bigger, stronger biceps that give you the adaptation that you want. So that's that kind of missing piece. Yeah. And I think what's interesting to plug in here is that when an example that people might understand from the strength and conditioning world, the flip side of this is the same principle that we leverage when we are trying to get stronger, better, faster, right? This is the science behind progressive overload. We have to continually keep raising the bar because the body is so good when it has what it needs, right? And that's not the focus of today because normally people don't have that that problem. They normally have the opposite problem. But the the concept is the same. When people have the resources they need and they are applying the correct training stimulus, you have to keep upping the ante because the body is going to adapt and adapt. And the longer you've trained and the more intensely you've trained, the more difficult it becomes to stimulate an adaptation. And so you have to keep making the adaptation. You have to keep making the stressor harder. Mm-hmm. So weights is the easiest way to think about this. We just keep adding weight and that makes it harder. And then we can progressively overload you. Know, but all fitness pursuits, there's a way to progressively overload so that you're challenging yourself more and more. Mm-hmm. And that's the foundation of fitness is leveraging stressors so that you can have better adaptation. The missing piece is recovery. Yeah. And the two components, the big two components of recovery are, do you have what you need, the resources you need to, to adapt? And then are you resting enough so that adaptation happens in a functional way? Yeah. And I think that 
one thing that's also important to state here is uh, when we think about stress, people, we the body doesn't really distinguish between the stress of your training and the stress of your boss yelling at you or being stuck in traffic or what, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> Take your pick, right? There's plenty of stressors to choose from in modern life. And I think it can be a little bit counterintuitive because so many people turn to exercise as a stress reliever, and it absolutely is. Uh, but we also have to keep in mind that exercise is in, is in itself also a stressor and your body is going to add that to the pile of or that's going to get added to the pile to all of the uh, the pile of all the other stressors that your body is trying to deal with and recover from and then adapt to. I think I think that's when it comes into the concept of resilience. So exercise is a stress reliever because it helps us be more resilient to stressors to other stressors. Mm -hmm. We can't negate that in your body when it's tallying the stresses of the day, it's including your set of back squats in with your boss yelling at you and that person on the highway cutting you off mm -hmm. and the stress of slouching in your office chair are all leveraged as stressors that your body had to deal with during the day. And it's, and then the amount of rest that you're getting is not, there's no separating the rest periods in your sets from how much sleep you got and how much downtime you got from a mentally stressful job. All of that goes into the calculation of how much rest you're getting. Exactly. So before we stress people out, talking about stress, uh, let's enumerate super clearly for people these components. We've touched on them, but let's be super clear about what we mean by what makes up what we talk about as recovery. And we have mentioned right. rest. By that, we mean both rest in your bed at night, uh, quality and quantity of sleep, and then also the manipulation of what is your work to rest ratio in your workouts, how right. much rest are you get in between sets. Uh, and then also a big one, a huge one, another, the second huge pillar of that, right, is nourishment or resources if we want to keep with the R words. Yeah, we have the three R's of recovery is the rest, resources, and resilience. So, exactly. But resources really, we can also call nourishment in our broader sense of nourishment, that mm -hmm. where it's resources are the things that you need for healthy adaptation. That is your literal food nutrients that are needed, your calories that are needed, your movement micronutrients, micronutrients, then your movement nutrients as well. So like the, you know, how the rounded nature of the movements you're doing, how that fits into the nourishment that you're getting. And then there's also resources for just how we deal with stress, the sense of like the things that make you think I've got this. Yeah. You think about when you have a stressor in life, the difference between a stressor when it is, okay, this is stressful, but I, I have the resources I need to deal with this. I've got this versus, bandwidth. You, mm -hmm. versus you have a stressor that's, what am I going to do about this? I don't have, I don't have what I need to deal with this. And I think it's important when we, whenever I talk about stress, I think it is, first of all, before I say that, if you are curious, if we've piqued your interest about what do we mean by movement as uh, movement nutrients or movement as nutrition, you need to go check out our episode uh, called Movement is Nutrition to learn more about that. But what I wanted to say about uh, this idea of stressors and does it exceed our capacity, I think it's important to add the caveat in that conversation of there are stressors that we have individual control over and that we can do our best to mitigate. But there's also 
the world is a stressful place to be, right? Especially if you are a woman or a, a black or a brown person or living in society and you, know, you don't happen to be one of the people that have risen to the top of capitalism, right? Like, stressors are individual. And then there's also these collective stressors that we can do our best to mitigate, but that should not, the, the fact that there, we only have a limited amount of control over reducing those should not be overlooked or glossed over. Right, definitely. And then our third R would be, which we've touched on a little, right? Like our resilience. Right. What are some examples of things that you and I use, for example, in our clinical practice to help increase people's resilience? Let's say resilience, you can kind of think of it's non-linear progressive overload. <laughs> so it's, it's your... <laughs> no big deal. It's, Super not it's complicated your, at all. Yeah, it's your... It's, it's, th it's things that increase our capacity to deal with the... To deal with the unknown, to deal mm -hmm. to to regulate, and as herbalists, we use a lot of herbs to increase the size of the bucket. You you can use stress management to decrease the amount of stress going into the bucket, and we use recovery rest to take stuff out of the bucket. But then you can also increase the size of the bucket with herbs with Things like hot and cold therapies and other things that stimulate the autonomic nervous system to create more autonomic tone. And with training in a way that prepares the system for lots of different variables. Yeah, and I think with that, something that uh, you and I talk about a lot and that I've learned a lot about from you is the power of novel, pleasant sensory input, which, mm -hmm. right, that's a sort of a generic way, but think about anything that feels good, right? Singing, right. foam rolling, swimming, anything that provides, and, and that's one of our tenets of our movement approach as well. So look to a future episode for more on that in detail. But just to give a little primer, your sensory system loves it, and laps up novel, pleasant input. And you have to, there's some individual variation, of course, in individual, what people yeah. find pleasurable. But but the that that feedback that our sensory environment and sensory experiences give us helps for nervous system regulation in a way that puts us in a more relaxed but ready state, which is relaxed a resilient state. I like that. Mm -hmm. And then just to circle back to this idea of individual versus collective, we also can draw on some of the ideas from polyvagal theory here and Stephen Porges's work in the sense that not only do we regulate our nervous systems, we are also hardwired to co-regulate our nervous co systems. Mm -hmm. So it may seem somewhat counterintuitive to think that going out for a drink with your friend or hugging someone from your family will help you get better at training. But in a sort of indirect way, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. Yeah, because that social engagement creates a lot of regulation. And I know that while there, there's no complete replacement for the social engagement we get from interacting with real people. For those of us that are due to COVID or just due to life circumstances have limited ability to do that. There are also tricks we can use to leverage that. So for example, we mentioned singing before, but singing and listening to non-amplified vocal music, for example, has been shown to that same co-regulation pathway in the brain. So that wow. can be a way that if you're limited in a in, pinch, yeah, if you got pinch, nobody around, yeah. you got <laughs> nobody around, you need some social engagement. That's a way to get that. You know, another thing a we can think of is for you, friends. Yeah, we can also get oxytocin from chocolate and 
kitties and puppies <laughs> went in a pinch when uh, missing oxytocin from fellow humans. So there's definitely ways that the introvert and socially distance, yeah, socially distance work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Before we go too deep down those the rabbit hole resilience, because I know that you and I could have seven episodes on that alone. Let's circle back around and talk about now that we have an understanding of what do we mean when we say recovery, right? We've got three R's. We've got rest, resources, and resilience. We have understood that the reason our recovery outside of the gym is important is because your body doesn't distinguish between training stress and daily stress, which means you are only getting the gains from the stress that you can recover from. So all of it has to be taken into account. Let's finish by giving some examples of some of the common recovery holes that you and I see in clinical practice. The number one, that one that I see is sleep debt. Would you agree? I would agree. Sleep, sleep and even just rest debt. Yes, Mm -hmm. I agree. We go a lot. So when I think about sleep debt, I not only think about quantity of sleep, number of hours of sleep, which I think is the first thing that comes to people's mind, but also quality of sleep, right? If you're waking up, if if you have a small child or a pet that wakes you up or your bed is not comfortable, yeah, we'll have a whole nother episode on sleep hygiene in a bit. But yeah, if you're waking up. And feeling unrested, mm-hmm. there there's stuff Something that can be worked on. on. Whether yep. that's in nutrition or that's in just sleep hygiene, yep. we we should be able to go to sleep and get up and feel like we've rested and recovered. Yes, and, and it's really important to look at that baseline. Non movers are under resting oftentimes. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about athletic endeavors, you're throwing on extra energy expenditure and extra stressors through the movements that we want you to do because these are important for health Mm -hmm. but that only amplifies your need for rest and recovery yes yeah and then so you were also saying not only do we talk about sleep uh rest is not just sleep at night but rest is also what you might think of as would you say downtime during the downtime Mm -hmm. yeah or in the evening or whenever disengagement from chatter even thinking about like meditative or flow states as a form of rest where we're getting out of that busyness if that's if that mental stimulation is the dominant stressor if it's physical stimulation then it's resting your body it's the shavasana at the end of the yoga practice it's having adequate cool down times after a workout yeah, I think for me, the sort of comical example that I, I often give to clients is I know when my expenditure is exceeding my, my withdrawals are exceeding my deposits when I get the urge to just sit in a room and stare at a wall. Yeah. <laughs> and that, those are the kind of things that we teach clients to look for and be on the lookout for. That's a orange flag, maybe not a red flag, but sometimes maybe a red flag, but try and catch it at the orange flag. But that's not the only common recovery hole we see, right? For us, we also see ones relating to nutrition and nutrient deficiencies. Yeah, nutrient deficiencies are huge. And so I'm sure we're going to do a whole thing on some of the most common nutrient deficiencies that we see, but of magnesium, zinc, and other uh, micronutrient deficiencies that I know both of us commonly see people that are having issues from not getting enough of there's some people are i've a lot of clients that just aren't getting enough of certain macronutrients not getting enough protein for the loads that you're under is super common not getting enough carbs because somewhere someone along the line told you that carbs were evil but you're also trying to run a marathon (laughs) exactly yeah and then then definitely fats though Mm -hmm. paleo and keto have done have a work to bring fats back into the 
acceptable light mm -hmm. back it's, into the there's sunlight. still yeah. a, there's still a cultural bias about like how much fat we can eat and so there's oftentimes people not getting enough fats not right so and then back to our movement nutrient kind of concept <laughs> is are you getting enough variety in your movements besides the movements that you're training to a high intensity in your training programs are you also getting the movements that are not a part of your sport yeah and then okay. i think something else as far as imbalance if we're talking about this idea of imbalanced training creating a recovery hole something that i see in the martial arts world a lot is specifically in the context of mma because we are basically trying to learn five sports it is mm -hmm. The tendency is you're just you're trying to get good at five sports and there's only a certain amount of hours in the day. So what you end up sometimes doing is overtraining just in general, right? You're training, you're exceeding. There is no one set level of training that is, quote, bad or good. There is only the level of training that exceeds the individual's capacity to recover, right? So I'll preface right. it with that. But I see many people training in at an intensity, at, at a high intensity or like a competition or sparring level intensity or what in the sports and strength and conditioning world would be called like a high RPE or a high rate of perceived exertion. If you were to ask someone how hard something feels to them when they're doing it, if they're going to say like a seven out of 10 or above, right? That's high yeah. intensity. Or like going for a run and the whole run, you're running at a pace that would be what you did during a 5k. Right. You're trying to mm -hmm. win the race. Your yep. lungs are on fire. Your heart's pounding. You can't talk. Right. And I think we do have to be strict conditioning. One thing that makes this very interesting, right? And this is just a little dabble into sort of the strength and conditioning world and programming is that you do have to strategically include that in your programming, of course, exactly. because you have Definitely. to train at those intensities. But the trick is to include just the right amount of that to get the adaptation, but not put an undue, unnecessary additional strain on the body. So yeah, it shouldn't be just to, like the CrossFit mindset of having the puke buckets and like training is just to like all be constantly pushing your your boundaries to the extent that you're just going at your full that right is... because there's mental toughness and then there's puking Definitely. and you're not actually getting any additional benefits from working on so hard you puke beyond it, like maybe a, a touch of that a sprinkle of that I mean, in the week <laughs> yeah a sprinkle of that because really once you get into some of those zones the highest benefit of doing those is just being better at doing that yes. it's like boot mm -hmm. camp is meant to overstress you and under recover you so that you are ready to be overstressed and under overstressed and under recovered mm -hmm. so that as a specific tool for a specific purpose that is not something you do all the time yeah you do have to train in those zones you do have to do that but i what i tend to see is folks doing a little bit too much of that out of a desire yeah. to master their sport specifically in the context and i also with that another thing that is pretty common in the martial arts world is folks this is why take an amateur mma fighter and a pro mma fighter the amateur is going to be more likely to overtrain because the amateur is more likely to have a day job or a second, exactly. second job or something like that whereas a pro like the idea right if you can make it to where training is your job then you are actually less likely to overtrain than someone who's there also working because there is a privilege in being a professional athlete in that your main stressor then is your physical training. Mm -hmm. yep. It is your, your training physical, itself, yep. which means you can train at a much higher level. Yes. You know, in boot camp, you're in boot camp. You're not also doing Working a nine to five. Task. Yeah. Exactly. So we have to think about this as an equation. You have mm -hmm. your, you have um, your training volume and your training intensity, and you can only take those up to certain levels 
and based be able on to all the other stressors in your life and based on all those stressors in your life and still be able to recover from them. Otherwise, you would need to take off from work and have full time recovery training sessions to go with it. Yes. It's the other place that I think that messes with people's ability to recover and have resilience in their training is over specialization. Um, yes, especially with kiddos. I feel like we're seeing a lot more of that these days yeah. where kiddos are hyper specializing in one sport, maybe two really yeah. early on. I think in the past, there was injuries. Yeah. It, I think that in the far past, we as humans were very eclectic in our movements. And then even in the more recent past, the, the idea of general physical education was a much bigger emphasis than it is now. Now the kind of sport has taken over physical education and fitness. So unfortunately, kids are often under moving unless they are deemed good enough to do a certain sport. And then all they're doing is training that sport. And kids are doing it, which I think is maybe a whole nother thing we could dive into more, but adults are doing it too. And we're moving into where that for most of us, our fitness endeavors are specialized to the, you know, their sport, even things that are less traditional. CrossFit has its own ethos and requirements that make it more like a sport that you're training for and you're constantly doing that sport. Mm -hmm. So in addition to watching our intensities and our volumes, we have to make sure we're not always overtraining the patterns that are for whatever our chosen sports are. Yeah. We're not constantly drilling the same types of movements, the same types of movements. So we're not constantly from people around where I live. The Highland Games is mm. a really common sport that allows a lot of amateur entries into it. And that's a big problem with that. It's a high intensity, heavy throwing sport. And what most of the amateur athletes are doing to train for it is a little bit of strength work in the gym and then a ton of going Sports out and, specific. Throw, and throwing the stuff over and over again all year long. It's also really hard that a lot of sports that are more popular with, we would say, amateurs or non-professional athletes don't have defined seasons. So hey, unlike mm -hmm. the football season or the baseball season, if you want to train in the Highland Games or train for a Tough Mudder or Spartan race, or you want to train mixed martial arts. You're doing that year round. You're doing it year round. It's interesting. Your season is um, forever. And there is this interesting kind of caveat that we get into is sometimes the more holistic the sport is, the easier it is to then also miss the other things you need. So, you know, mixed martial arts or like shade, the obstacle Horace, racing about to throw shade i can yeah. already tell <laughs> mixed martial arts <laughs> is super holistic and involves so much it's like a you're basically in a school of study in addition to a multi-dynamic training mm -hmm. thing where you're taxing your mental and physical capacities to learn wrestling jujitsu multiple boxing, types of striking yeah <laughs> and then putting it all together doesn't leave much room for running and swimming and doing the monkey bars because of its holism, which also makes it a more dynamic sport than if your sport was just going a shot put. Mm. It also takes up a lot of bandwidth and makes it even yes. harder to make sure you're filling in those gaps. Right. Because you have to 
if we have done our job in the last 20 or so minutes, we have now convinced people that they need to prioritize their recovery so that it's you run out of time if you are trying to learn all of the things, prioritize recovery and fill in any gaps that your sport it, has. It's hard. So um, we are let it, we can acknowledge that this can be a challenging thing. Be a really <laughs> challenging thing. For sure. And it, and it can be a hard conversation of thinking about, do I truly have the bandwidth to go at the intensity that I'm going to go at right now? Yes. Well, let's leave it there. You have been listening to the Move Nourish podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Alyssa. And I'm Forrest. And we will catch you next time. Bye.